Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. Right, welcome to the twelfth episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. It's been a little bit of a hiatus for me. I've actually missed the last two episodes, but I'm very thankful to my co-host Patrick Schultz for taking over uh, and interviewing our last two guests. Let's see. So we had Elaine O'Neill last week, and she yep. talked a little bit about the the carbon market and the Washington Farm Forestry Association. It was an awesome episode to listen to. And then we had the week before we did variable density thinning, right? With Connie Harrington and Leslie Brody. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, that's an awesome one. And we've been even trying, I know that one, they, they work a lot in the in the west side of, uh, of Washington, but we apply quite a bit of that over here on the east side with some of our dry forests. Yeah, so, what do you call it here or in the east side? It's a different. Yeah, we call it ICO, Individuals, Clumps, and Openings. <laughs> just a different acronym it is it totally is just a different acronym but it, it's it's you know a little bit more focused on the drier ecosystems where trees are more heavily spaced out way lower density way lower basal area uh and you can end up in situations where you know i i don't know in variable density thinning how often their gaps will be you know a tenth of a hectare or you know very large gaps sometimes um just because over here you end up with a lot of those really dry low regen areas it just isn't successful um, and so th- that's kind of the structure, I think, that that differences between the two. Sure. So today, for our last episode, just in case anybody didn't know this, but when we first started this project, uh, we received a grant from the Society of American Foresters, the Foresters Fund, and uh, we asked for a trial run on 12 episodes for this podcast. And today is our 12th episode, and we are joined by Matt Preventure. Matt is currently, I'm going to butcher this. I butcher every title for everybody who comes into this. <laughs> Matt is the manager, are you director or manager of the Small Forest Landowner Resiliency Stewardship Program? That I, I know I'm just absolutely butchering that. <laughs> so Matt, Matt, how about you introduce yourself? Because I always find you guys do a lot better at it. It's, uh, it's actually a lot shorter than that. It's the Service oh. Forest Program Manager for the state. Wow, short short titles and words for forestry and science. That's incredible. <laughs> to give Sean some credit, I think that 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 program's changed over time, has it not? Yeah. Because I was going to say, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good. You know, we've we've changed not only what we've called, uh, we've we've changed where we're located. Our division name has changed two or three times in the last several months. Uh, the the DNR is going through a lot of changes right now. Well, I'm sure we're going to get to a lot of that. And it's always good to keep all of us that rely on you on our toes. So I'm glad you guys are keeping us moving. Uh, but before we get into it, Matt, I, you know, we, we love to talk to our, uh, our guests, um, especially for the listeners, to get to know you and, and kind of how you got into this field. So uh, there wasn't a lot of information about you and your history online. I know some professors have these massive CVs. I can go look up their, their publications to the 60s. Um, but I don't know too much about you. So maybe, I mean, where are you from before going into college and getting into forestry? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Manchester, New Hampshire, about 50 miles north of Boston. Uh, Manchester is a medium-sized city, you know, 100,000 people. 
I lived in a city lot, right? In the, in the, not the middle of the city, but one of the neighborhoods of the city, right? So I didn't grow up, uh, in the woods, in rural areas, anything like that, you know? And I, I really, I got into forestry, uh, kind of on a whim. My, uh, I was, uh, a sophomore, junior in high school. Don't remember when pondering my future, like most sophomores and juniors in high school do. Right. Of course. And, um, we used to go camping a lot in the White Mountain National Forest in northern New Hampshire. And I just remember like one summer I was up there and I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life here and when I graduate high school. And I just remember looking around and being like, maybe I'll work here. And that is literally why I got into forestry, like sitting in the campground in the White Mountain National Forest, looking at the trees and saying, I want to work here. And I, I never did, right? I never worked on the White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire. And I was very specific when I said work here. I meant literally there. Um, but but still, um, it was a great decision. And it set me on the career path that I've been on since that day in like 1995 or six. Wow. So quite. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I'm just curious because, I mean, I know I had a similar trajectory. I, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, and I didn't even know those jobs existed. Did you know right, there yeah. were such things as nope. foresters or nothing? Nope. Okay. Nope. And in fact, when I said I wanted to live here, I wanted to be a forest ranger, whatever that means, right? Hmm. And that that was my original goal, right? And uh, I remember when I first went to visit. So I got my under, undergraduate degree in forestry from the University of Maine. And I remember when we went to school there to talk with the professors during one of the open house. My mom had more questions than me, right? Because I didn't even know what, what to ask, what to do, what what the jobs were, anything like that, right? I I didn't know that people managed forests or trees. I was one of those people, maybe like a lot of the listeners, that like uh, back east we have a lot of hardwood, so there were oak trees, there were maple trees, and there were pine trees. And every tree that I saw in the landscape was one of those three trees, right? It somehow <laughs> fit into those pines. So that that was me growing up. That's funny. Yeah, that's fun. what are we at, Patrick? Is that over 50% of the people that we've interviewed are from the East Coast, I think. Yeah, it's kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the quite East Coast the invasion. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's funny because I remember when I when I first got into this, you know, being from the Tri-Cities where there's no forests whatsoever, I, my parents still wonder how I got into this field. I'll go back and they'll be like, oh, well, what did you end up doing with your life? And it's like, oh, I went into forestry. And they, everybody, everybody, every time says, oh, you're a forest ranger, right? That's what you do. You're a, you're a forest ranger for the national park system. It's like, no, there's a little bit more out there than, than just forest rangers. Yep. Right. Yep. But that's a lot of what people think, right? They, they picture that person in the forest service uniform or the national park service uniform, uh, uh, talking with members of the public and probably cause you know, as far as someone that might be a forest manager, that's many people's maybe only interactions with some sort of park ranger, right? And not necessarily with the, the foresters on the ground, which of course are back in the woods, off a trail, working alone quite often, right? And and aren't always seen even if there's people in the neighborhood. Yeah. I have to admit there is part of me that has always wanted to wear the pickle suit. So. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what? You've never heard that? They call that the green uniform from the Forest Rangers. They call that the pickle suit. Uh, so I I did work for the Forest Service in Idaho for about a year and a half and I never got to wear the suit though. I was a, oh, I was a timber bad. marker. So. 
Yeah, so take us through, Matt, after after you went through college, what was your early career like before coming to DNR? Yeah, so, um, you know, undergraduate degree from University of Maine, like I said, and I graduated in May of 2002 from, from that program, and of course that was shortly after September 11th, right, and the economy was a little depressed at the time, so there wasn't a whole lot going on, and so it wasn't my plan to jump into grad school, but I did, uh, mostly because it was hard to find a job there, um, and so I uh, I went to West Virginia University where I got a master's degree in forest management and I graduated that in 2004 and I was really focusing on uh, New England right that was really where I wanted to like focus my career on and uh, I wanted to be maybe some sort of consulting forester or someone working with landowners right so early on in my career I knew that I wanted to work with small forest landowners in fact my my master's thesis my research was looking at the differences on best management practices that were implemented between landowners that had a forest stewardship plan and ones that didn't, right? So even going all the way back to college, this has been an interest of mine. And so, you know, the the land use in New England's a little different, right? There's a lot more private ownership, a lot less public ownership. So uh, the quote unquote service forester or stewardship forester that we may talk about a little later in this podcast, there are a precious few of those in a lot of the New England states, right? At least compared to what you see in in some of these larger western states um just because there's not a lot of a of a even though there's a little bit more private ownership there's not as much forest land and then the public forests in general and the public um, forestry agencies they might be pretty robust in some cases but they're still kind of pale in comparison to a lot of these larger programs you see out west at least that's my sense anyway sure. right yeah and and so that that job search didn't really work out and so after after i graduated and i'm kind of looking around and i was planning on helping out with some research after graduation at west virginia and uh this guy from idaho just calls me up and he's with the forest service and i had applied for a bunch of seasonal forest service jobs and he's just like you want to mark timber in idaho and i was like sure and this was like a week before I had to get there. And so my life was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like a country music song. So I went from West Virginia <laughs> to New Hampshire. I dropped off my stuff in New Hampshire. I bought a pickup truck. I loaded up everything that I wanted in my pickup truck and I drove out west. And uh, that was in 2004, all my possessions in a pickup truck driving out west across the country. And uh, I, I haven't lived on the East Coast since, right? So I was spent in Idaho from... Uh, May of 04 until October of 05. November 1st of 05 was my first day with the DNR. And here it is, August 3rd of 2022, and I'm still with the DNR. Wow. Different jobs well, over the course, but I've, I'm still here. Yeah, and I'm just curious, what was that first job with the DNR? My first job was running inmate crews, right? Oh, so wow. I, uh, I came to the DNR, and uh, I was actually recruited by... Uh, by uh, an assistant region manager who was also from New Hampshire. And so when he called me up, we ended up talking more about New Hampshire than we did about the job that he was calling to talk to me about, right? And I <laughs> honestly, I really believe that's why I got the job. I think the guy just liked me. I don't know that I was the best one for the job. I beat out <laughs> candidates. I found out after that had way more experience running crews and way more forestry experience than I did. Um, but I think he liked me. And so, um, you know, for the for the children listening out there, relationships are important. Right? <laughs> yeah, Personality is important. Yes, exactly. Right. And so that's how I got in, really. And uh, I ran inmate crews for two years um, and then I jumped out and I was a state lands forester with the DNR for about five. Um, I went into forest practices after that for around three years. And then ever since 2014, I've been uh, working with small forest landowners, either 
in the forestry riparian uh, easement program, the FRET program, or the regulation assistance program, or the stewardship program. So about eight years now working directly with small forest landowners. So you really have quite the array of, of background in, in forestry. That's really cool to hear. What, what do you think was the, the hardest thing to learn coming from your training in the hardwood forests in the Northeast to these just pure, almost pure, I guess your West side, so you get a little bit of alder in there, but uh, the pure hardwood or um, conifer forest out, out West here. You know, I, I think to me what it is, is uh, you really just have to learn the ecology, right? I mean, all trees need light water and nutrients, right? No matter where you go and you work in forests, all trees need light water and nutrients. And at the crux of what we do is managing those resources so that trees can be more resilient and healthy, right? But what you need to learn when you work in different areas is what trees occupy, what niche, um, what their physiology is, what, what traits they have, what characteristics they have, so that you know how to apply the knowledge, right? So the knowledge of thinning might be, you know, the same, whether you're in Maine or Michigan or Washington, but how you apply it and what trees you apply it on and at what level you apply it to is all different, right? And and so to me, what what I've said is coming out here, uh, yeah, I had the basics, right? Like I took all the classes, but that doesn't necessarily translate from managing a beech birch maple forest, a northern hardwood forest that, you know, Patrick was probably intimately familiar with from Michigan to, uh, you know, managing a forest that you might see on either side of the state, quite frankly, east side or west side, right? Because, you know, red alder, you know, that occupies a very definitive niche, right? And in uh in the East Coast, you'll have hardwoods from the bottomlands up over the mountains and back down, right? So, mountains are relative, of course. But. Yeah. yeah, and I know that you and I, Matt, have joked a couple times about how we're not sure we're really viable foresters back east at this point, just because, uh, you know, I mean, you certainly spent more time out, out west than I have, but it's just, th this is where I cut my teeth. Um, Me too. And... So I, I wonder if I could really even go back and, and do the whole hardwood thing. The Washington forest has become my home, so to speak. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult, Patrick, right? Probably like you, when you took your dendrology class in, in college, you had to do twig and bud identification, right? Bark identification. Yeah. So, so you could, you could identify, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you could identify those trees in the winter, right? And what I find mm -hmm. now is... If, if there's leaves on the hardwoods, I, I probably have a 90% chance at identifying it properly. In the wintertime, they're all oaks and maples again, right? It's just all <laughs> back back to the same, right? It's um, uh, it's it's a little bit more difficult, right? And so that, I think you're right, you know, as you move along in your career, um, not that you can't move, right? But you always have that steep learning curve that you have to have to reapply, I guess, when you sure. things that are area to the state or the country again. Yep. And then there's me who just moves all of my site visits into the spring and summertime so I can just avoid seeing anything that leaves on it. <laughs> yeah. Tactical. That's tactical. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much, Matt. Um, so take us into, you talked a little bit about your movement through DNR and where you've kind of gone to now. So you currently work in the DNR Forest Stewardship Program. What is that program for the listeners who may not be aware of DNR Forest Stewardship? Yeah, so so forest stewardship is part of what we're calling service forestry, right? So up until um, oh maybe a year or so ago, um, we had uh, a couple of competing programs, right? And I guess competing is not the right word. Complementary programs, right? We had forest stewardship, 
Um, that was basically two people. There was myself in Western Washington. There was Rob Leinberger in Eastern Washington. And we would help the landowners with um, general knowledge and advice, right? You had questions about if your trees were healthy or not. You had questions about what you're even seeing out there, invasive species, maybe a management plan, whatever, whatever it might be, right? That was Rob's job in Eastern Washington, my job in Western Washington. And then we had what we called the, the landowner assistance program. And that was basically financial assistance, right? And so their primary role was some activity needed to get done. This was uh, primarily confined to Eastern Washington at the time. Um, and so they would uh, fund thinning activities, pruning activities, slash management activities, primarily chipping, but it might be some other ways. Um, they may fund... Um, uh, prescribed fire, um, things like that, right? So they're basically funding uh, forest health and fuels reduction treatments throughout Eastern Washington in a pre-commercial fashion, right? And so what we've done over the last year or so is we've combined those programs into service forestry. So yes, there's kind of forest stewardship and it's kind of under service forestry. And yes, we still have this financial assistance program under service forestry, but we're not necessarily calling them that anymore. It's just all service forestry. And so now what it is, is it used to be if you wanted tree planting advice, you had to call this person. If you wanted financial assistance, you had to call this person. Now you're essentially calling the same person, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're making it easier for landowners to find what they're looking for, basically. And that's the service forester. Um, is going to be the primary connection to the DNR for small forest landowners, right? Whether they're looking for services through service forestry or Tammy Makita's shop down in the small forest landowner office, which would be the PREP program, um, the Rivers and Habitat Open Space program, Family Forest Fish Passage program, or regulation assistance. Service forester is going to be able to help connect landowners with not only DNR resources, but also other external resources, right? So we're going to be trained to know what does WSU Extension offer? And is this person we're talking to maybe a better fit for their program? What about conservation districts? What about um, uh, NRCS, right? Are, are these other partners that we have a better fit than what the DNR has to offer? And it's really going to be the service forester's role to help connect landowners with the resource, regardless of where or who that resource is. So is that st is there still going to be a deviation between east and west side, or is it becoming more of a comprehensive statewide? It looks the same on both sides of the mountains. Yeah, good question. So um, it's the program is going to be pretty similar between east and west side. So uh, I had told you that that financial assistance program was primarily on eastern Washington. Well, really, as of uh, August first. Uh, that program has been rolled out to Western Washington, right? And come about a week later on August 8th, we're going to start advertising that with a website, right? So um, it looks a little different because in Western Washington, of course, with climate change, um, maybe fire regimes are changing, right? We might be seeing a, a little bit more of these more frequent smaller fires than maybe you used to see historically in Western Washington where you just have these big ragers very infrequently, right? Um, mm -hmm. But still our program on the West side Though it will have a fire, like in fuels, risk reduction component, it's going to be more silvicultural based, right? You have 600 stems per acre of a monoculture of Douglas fir. Let's do some pre-commercial thinning in that. Maybe let's do some planting for some diversity in there, right? So we're going to be looking at some silvicultural treatments. And so it's going to have fire in it, but it's, on the west side, it's not going to be fire focused. It's going to be forest health, uh, forest resilience. 
which of course, you know, doing that reduces the risk of fire, reduces the risk right. for insects and disease, increases the ability to withstand climate change and drought and things like that, right? So really, um, fire and forest health on both sides of the mountains are pretty interrelated, right? You could argue maybe a little less so on the west side, but it's still there and it's still a component of our forest ecosystems. You know, you've thrown a word, a word around a couple times now, this, this idea of stewardship. Um, I, I think we, we'd like to throw this word often. It sounds really cool. We're all stewards. Um, but I mean, can you provide maybe your definition and then I, I guess maybe even DNR's definition, which might be your definition? Yeah, I don't know that the DNR has uh, like this quote unquote definition, right? But in general, what stewardship to me means is wise use in, in a forested context, right? Because stewardship could be a whole bunch of different things, of course, is is wise use of our forest resources that really leaves our our resources in a condition where it's it's equal or better for the future, right? So really, it's kind of this ethic um, that has planning and management of resources um, that that really is is done in a way that that we're leaving things equal or better, right? And I think with stewardship, that's the key here, right? If we're practicing good stewardship, we're leaving things as good or better for the future than we left them today. And I think if we're doing that, we're practicing good stewardship. Yeah, you know, I uh, it kind of reminds me of this landowner who uh, owns some property up in the north, north part of the state. And uh, we did a site visit for him and walked out there and he had just recently bought the property and it had sadly, when he bought it, found out that it had been overcut, the, the real classic high grade, um, pretty much cut it down to the just close to minimum trees per acre. Uh, anything that was merchantable left was Western Red Cedar. And for anybody that's been kind of following where Western Red Cedar has been, uh, if you leave it exposed to the sunlight in today's climate and weather patterns, uh, it just doesn't fare very well. Uh, it just dies from the heat and it dies from the sun. And so he was in a really tough situation. Uh, and this gentleman was a little bit older and, uh, you know, he, he bought the property. And I think when he took my stewardship class, we went and did the side visit and took all the classes. And he kind of was coming to the slow realization that this property probably wasn't going to be uh, really any merchantable value for him in the near term future. Uh, and in realistic or realistically wasn't necessarily a super healthy forest. It was high fire. Uh, pretty much a single species regenerating very thickly in the understory uh, and very low value of um, forbs and grasses and, and shrubs and uh, canopy structure. And so we had a really good conversation about, you know, what are the steps? And it was really encouraging to hear him talk about, you know, that whole uh, plant a tree now, you may not stand under it, but you're, you're planting it for a shade for somebody in the future. Um, and I think that was kind of his philosophy going into it. I think that was one of those like, perfect examples of me for somebody who is taking a stewardship approach to their forest um, for something that probably wasn't going to benefit them uh, in the meantime. And that was really cool to hear. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with a lot of those points, right? When we're thinking about good stewardship, the, the fruits of our labor are often going to be seen by our children and grandchildren, not us. Right. And that can be a, a conversation worth having with landowners, right? That we're always going to be thinking beyond the scale of a human life. Like when you look at trees and how long those organisms can live, um, you know, the 80 to 100 year old human uh, can be a, a relatively small part of that forest history and life, right? And so we always got to be thinking about that. Patrick and I had a, a similar thing up in uh, 
the Cranberry Lake Foundation property mm-hmm. that Patrick and I are part of in Shelton, where we uh, we had this three acres. It was an old Christmas tree plantation. It was noble fir. Noble fir is not native to the lowlands of Shelton, Washington, right? And so when we're thinking about good stewardship and how that forest is going to do in the future, um, the prospects weren't good, right? So it was a, a tree not well adapted to the site. It was full of heterobacidian root disease. We had confirmed that. And um, so that disease was running through and, and noble fir can be very susceptible to it. And these trees were, of course, already stressed because they're not growing in a happy spot for them. And so we, we ended up clear cutting that three acres, right, and replanting western white pine and Douglas fir and western red cedar, which in the short term, yep, it's a messy clear cut and it's full of scotchman right now. And Patrick and I are formulating plans uh, after the tree farm seminar coming up in September to treat it. Um, but once, you know, looking out 40, 60 years, uh, we have, we're going to have a good native forest there. Right. And it was not ever going to be that in its current state. And I think when you're making decisions like that, you're practicing good stewardship when you're looking, looking out towards that future. Well, and that's, uh, why it's so awesome that the service forestry program is being built out because these, you know, we're supposed to call them service foresters now, but I'm just always going to call them stewardship foresters, I think, because I just, I don't know. Oh, that's what I want to call them. Um, <laughs> and I'm stubborn, I guess. But um, I, I have been on, you know, so many site visits with stewardship foresters. I've acted as a stewardship forester myself for coach planning site visits. Um, you know, Matt, uh, to, to share another landowner story, one of the first site visits that you and I ever went on together was for my first coach planning out in Aberdeen. And there was a gentleman out there who had bought this property out in Mo Clips. If you know where Mo Clips is, there's a lot of uh, quite boggy uh, land out there. Uh, and it it was an interesting site visit because he had bought the property thinking it would be a good investment for his children. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we had 90-year-old cedars out there that had only about five inches in diameter. Uh, you know, it's just terrible ground for that. But throughout the course of the day, uh, Matt and I were just geeking out about the diversity on that property. And I do think, even though it wasn't the best day for the landowner, over the course of that, he did come to understand just how important it was to still take care of that land. And he went on to write a really great uh, uh, stewardship plan. And so, you know, it's the site visit foresters, it's the extension foresters, and, you know, conservation districts play a role in this too. Um, that can help frame landowners, uh, give landowners that frame of mind, you know, thinking about the next 40, 50 years, uh, thinking about passing it on to the, the next generation, what to do now and, and how to, to put the work in now so that it's uh, healthy in the long run. So I'm, I'm pumped to circle back that the service forestry program is being built out and that landowners are going to have so much access to good expertise. Um, and I may, Matt, you can tell us a little more about like what that's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely can. Right. So, um, you know, the first thing that I would say to your point with that land around Mo clips is, is one of the things about service forestry, one of the things about our service foresters or the conservation district foresters, or even NRCS foresters and them out there is that, um, we get paid the same, whether you take our recommendations or not. Right. In other words, we have no financial incentive. To tell you to do something one way or another the the most important thing to us is giving you advice and recommendations that fits your goals and objectives right and so that's one of the things you're going to get from a service forester that that you may not necessarily get 
from other avenues, right? That may have some financial incentive to tell you something. And so one thing this, with landowners is anytime you're looking for that unbiased opinion, that unbiased, unbiased advice, um, DNR service foresters, conservation district foresters, WSU extension foresters, that is our job, right? Like our, okay. our paychecks are not dependent on you doing something, right? If you do nothing, I get paid just the same. All we want to do is give you great <laughs> advice and recommendations, right? And I think that's an important service that we provide landowners. As far as what it's going to look like, right? So we have um, service foresters. They need to have a fair amount of experience just to come into the job, right? So we're looking for a minimum of five years. So our service forester jobs are not entry-level positions, right? Uh, it might be three years. I'd have to look again. But uh, the point is, is that um, they're not something that you're going to get right out of college, right? You're going to need a couple of years of experience at least. Um, and what that means is that you, you're going to have foresters that are helping you that have at least seen something, right? They're not just going to have right. uh, this uh, this undergraduate college experience, which can be awesome, right? And there can be a lot of great internships that, that people can do, right? So I'm not trying to detract from that or not, right? But the foresters that have come visit you have definitely had some sort of uh, experience setting up timber sales, working with landowners already, uh, um, doing some aspects of forestry, right? And so they're going to be trained up um, whether you need reforestation advice, whether you need help with timber management, right? whether you're looking to improve riparian areas or water quality, um, wildlife habitat, right? So not only will all foresters be able to help you with wildlife habitat, but we, of course, have Ken Bevis, who I believe has been on this podcast before, um, that's available to landowners across the state to help with wildlife needs, uh, recreational opportunities and soil and aesthetics and privacy and beauty, right? Like all that stuff um, is important, right? So kind of what we'd say amenity forestry, right? If you're, what I've told landowners is that if you're interested in maximizing your timber volume, I'm going to help you. If you want big old trees in minimizing timber harvest or not even interested in timber harvest at all, I'm going to help you, right? And that's going to be the same with the service foresters, right? We're we're here to help you, uh, the, the landowner, regardless of their objectives, right? Our, our sole goal is to help landowners achieve whatever their goals and objectives are in the property. You know, Matt, you and I partner, and, and Patrick as well, and the rest of WSU Forestry partner with you guys quite extensively on our coach planning class. And we do a lot, and that, that course is really centered around this idea of writing a forest management plan. And so I, a lot of people, you know, they'll get plans done for tax purposes, you know, the designated forest land tax plan. And those are great, um, but we definitely want to take a more vested approach to writing a forest management plan. I'm actually curious from your perspective, especially knowing that you did uh, part of your master's thesis on this. You know, like, why should a landowner go out and actively engage in writing their own forest management plan? Yeah. So, you know, that's a good question, right? So we, we like to see landowners have forest uh, stewardship or forest management plans. They certainly may not be appropriate for everybody, but, you know, private landowners, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep your land healthy and productive, not only now, but into the future, right? Whether you want to increase economic value, whether you want to protect water quality and air quality and wildlife habitat or natural beauty or all of the above, right? It, it, for most landowners, it is all of the above. Um, a forest stewardship plan can really help you identify the goals for your land, the objectives of the land, and then it lists the activities needed to, to meet those objectives, right? In, in a plan that uh, hopefully is easy to understand, hopefully is valuable. It can uh, stimulate conversation with neighbors about forest management. It can help you get 
eligible for tax benefit programs like uh, current use programs like designated forest land. It can help you get into the tree farm program. It could help you get SFI or FSC certification potentially, right? Um, and uh, it qualifies you for financial incentives programs. So the DNRs program doesn't require a plan, but NRCS does. And so if you're looking to get EQIP or um, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program or the Conservation Stewardship Program, CSP, that plan is required. But, you know, perhaps most importantly, what it does is small forest landowners, um, they're passionate about their forestry or their forest land and they have a vision, right? They have what they see in their, in their minds as the future of their forest. And the thing is, like we've already talked about in this podcast, like that forest is going to outlive you, right? It's going to outlive me. And so it provides continuity of management to help uh, at least increase the chances that your vision, the landowner today's vision, is implemented into the future. Because now children, siblings, heirs to the property know what you were thinking, right? And I've been out on landowner's properties, and maybe you have too, where, uh, Children have inherited property from their parents or grandparents, and the children have no clue what their parents were thinking. But the children have said that their parents were so passionate about it, right? They really enjoyed this property. It meant a lot to them. But they don't know what their parents wanted, right? They don't know what their grandparents wanted. That's what a plan can help landowners achieve, right, is that continuity. So you have it when you're gone. Your forest is still going to be there, and it gives your, your heirs that, that document to work off and implement that vision for the property. A common operating picture. That's what we use in, in the fire world, right? We want everyone on a fire having the same common operating picture of where we're going. And that's what a plan does for you. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I've definitely had some landowners in that in that situation. Um, just being able to pass on, that, that use that plan as a source of knowledge transfer is really critical. And some of the listeners probably know that I'm um, taking on some uh, forest management duties with WSU on some land they own in the Olympia area. And I'm not a landowner by any means, um, just, just helping out with some of the restoration activities. So I didn't really set out to make a plan for that, but I quickly found myself doing it just because it is an incredibly useful tool to have everything in one place and refer back to. It keeps you on time too. A lot of times we don't write things down. We don't do them. At least I know that's how I am. So there really is just no end to the benefits of writing a stewardship plan. I don't remember who said it, but somebody when I first started working told me that a, a forest management plan was like a living document. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it this this life form that uh, breathes into the forest and the forest breathes into it. And it's constantly telling this narrative of both what you want to do and what's being done to it at the same time. And I thought that was right. always a really cool analogy um, of the interaction between the two. Yeah, and, and to that point about being a living document, they can change as conditions on the ground change, as landowner objectives change, as life changes, right? And so that's part of being that living document, right, is that these are not static documents. They're not regulatory documents, right? Just because you write a plan doesn't mean that that is the management you shall follow at all costs, right? Uh, we can we can amend those plans. We can change those plans, right? And so they're really designed to be flexible to to change, like I said, as as uh, conditions on the ground change or landowner objectives change. And I think that's that's really critical as well with those forest stewardship plans. And and think about managing a forest. Like uh, if there's a listeners out there that. Uh, are project managers, right? And you have all of these different pieces, right? And you may have spreadsheets or these project management uh, software that's helping you track the different things that have to get done. 
that's often like what managing a forest is, right? Like, you know, you may only have five or 10 acres of forest land, but if you have a full-time job, it's still hard to keep up with everything you may have to do on your five or 10 acres, right? And what a plan can do is really help you manage what, what really is essentially a complex project, right? Managing a forest, right? And it can help keep it in order for you and help give you a sense of, of priorities, if you will, and what, what needs to get tackled first and what, what can wait down till down the road a little further. Well, uh, before we, we wrap up, um, maybe we should finish with a, a call to action here and, um, you can tell us how landowners can get involved or, or learn more about the service forestry program and, uh, get in touch with someone to plug them in. Yeah. So, um, you know, very soon here, uh, possibly as soon as next week, we're going to have a new landowner assistance portal on the DNR website. So if you go to dnr.wa.gov and you get the programs and services up there in the top left, there's going to be a drop down box that's going to show up and it's going to say something like landowner assistance portal, right? And that's really going to be the landing spot for most small forest landowners that are looking for any one of our services, right? Not just the DNR or not just the service forestry program, but any one of the small forest landowner programs that Tammy Makita's shop may have. It's going to have some stuff on our prescribed fire and certified uh, burner program. Um, it's going to have some stuff in urban and community forestry and community resilience. Um, and so there's, there's going to be a lot of information up there. And then the other thing that we're developing right now that's going to be really cool for landowners is what we're calling the Find Your Forester tool. And that's going to be an interactive web map. And you're going to be able to go on a map. You're going to be able to type in your address. You're going to be able to click on a spot or you're going to be able to answer questions to get what you want, depending on, on how your mind works and depending on how you want to find that information. And it's going to spit out basically a list of foresters or, or the person that you should be looking for in your area, right? And then, of course, there's always going to be an email and there's going to be uh, like an 800 number uh, for people that just want to call and talk to somebody, right? And, uh, so we're going to have multiple ways and uh, uh, not knowing when this podcast is going to come out, what I would say is landowners should stay tuned because if it's not up on the website by the time you've listened to this podcast, um, it's going to be coming very shortly. I'm sure it will be. This will be coming out early September, so uh, we okay. maybe we'll make sure we'll put that that link in the bio. And and I, I just yeah. want to say too, I know we've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but um, just to kind of speak to the magnitude of the change here, you know, as Matt said, even a year ago, he was the only uh, service forester or stewardship forester available for Western Washington, and we had one over in Eastern Washington, and and now we're looking at somewhere in the uh, vicinity 14. Of 14. Yeah. Right. Just, just for the West side. Right. And which is uh, remarkable. Cert- yeah. So with service forestry, right. So we always had a lot of what we called landowner assistance foresters and our service forestry in Eastern Washington. So they went from just Rob. And once we kind of changed the duties, the existing staff now in Eastern Washington, there's gotta be 15 or 16 anyways, if not a few more than that. And then there's 14 for Western Washington. Right. So for Western Washington, it went from me, so 14 people spread throughout the state to help you out, right? And that doesn't even include the conservation districts, several of which have foresters as well, right? So um, both sides of the mountains now are, um, there's a lot of help available for small forest landowners, right? And I encourage you yeah. to take advantage of it. We're here to help and we're happy to help. Exciting times. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for coming out today on the Forest Overstory. It's been a pleasure helping us wrap up the 12th episode of this podcast. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, So yeah, thank you very much, Matt, for coming out today. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, have a nice day. 
Well, that was the 12th episode. Uh, and as we mentioned, uh, we uh, our initial hope was to put out 12 as a part of the grant from the Society of American Foresters. Uh, we just wanted to to wrap up by thanking all of the all of you listeners uh, for for hanging out through these 12 episodes as we kind of found our voice uh, for the podcast and uh, our interview style and um, really got into the swing of things. And we've got some really good memories of it. We have enjoyed a lot and we're looking forward to the future of this. So we wanted to kind of touch base. Uh, Sean, what was some of your favorite memories? Yeah. I mean, I just think back to the very beginning when we first started doing this, you know, you and I were probably sitting on a zoom session COVID was still going and, um, you know, we were, we were talking to ourselves about, uh, I think we were just talking about a podcast that we were enjoying that day. Uh, and we looked at each other and went, you know what we should do? We should start a podcast on forestry. Right. And just like that, I was like, you know what, I'm going to make this happen. We're going to make this happen. And, uh, I was really thankful to, uh, the society of American foresters, which is the national professional association of foresters. Um, they were the ones that actually funded this podcast. So, Big shout out to them for, you know, stepping forward. Uh, and also there was some support, uh, financial support from the Inland Empire chapter. So the local chapter that covers Eastern Washington and Northern Idaho. They put forward some funds uh, from their internal accounts that helped me put together the chapter or the, the podcast. Um, so I just, I was, it was really cool to see it all come together. Um, and, you know, I, just getting to sit and talk with the breadth of people that we did, you know, anywhere from you know, mega stars in our field, like Paul Hesburgh and Dave Peterson and, you know, um, uh, Jerry Franklin, you know, these guys are, I mean, I, when I was in school, they were the names that you were reading textbooks from. Um, so just super big names, but then, you know, even talking to you know, landowners on the ground, hearing their story, uh, and then, you know, listening to, uh, you know, a couple people, we, we covered so many different interesting topics. I'm really bummed that I didn't get to go to the Elaine O'Neill one and the variable density thinning one. I was really looking forward to hearing those episodes. Um, but yeah, it's just been so cool to, to hear these stories. Yeah, it's really hard to pin down a favorite interview. I don't think that one exists. Uh, they're all unique yeah, right. and awesome. Uh, and I have to say, it's like, you know, a lot, of this, a lot of these people that we've interviewed, I knew already, I've had conversations with, but at the same time, framing it inside of this podcast, it was kind of like getting to talk to them for the first time um, and just really dive into who they were. And I don't know, there's something about the structure of it that I feel like I got to know some people really well. Yeah. You know, I was really blown away. I didn't know what to expect with doing this podcast. You know, even going into COVID, we didn't know what to expect in terms of right. how people would uh, really enjoy this online world of learning and whatnot. And, you know, so I think when we wrote the grant for the podcast, we only wrote it for, I think it was like, 50 listeners per episode. Uh, and so to put that into perspective, let's see, I'm going to, I'm going to open up the highlights for uh, the, the whole podcast for the year. It's 49. <laughs> for, <laughs> we got to go get yeah, one we more. Were, <laughs> we were just short. All right. No. So the, the, for you listening, we need your, we need your one listen. Right. <laughs> so, to this day, as we're recording this, and this is just a, two days after the 11th episode released, and this is before this episode released, we currently have 7,686 wow. listens. So that's 
you know, again, that's only with 11 episodes that have been released. This will be number 12. I mean, I'm confident that it, these are, it's going to hit 10,000. And that's just so cool to see the, the impact that this has had on the community, on small forest landowners, on the forestry. I mean, I've heard people from private landowners that I've seen at conferences been like, oh, I listen to your podcast. I've talked to professional foresters. They said that they've always, they've really enjoyed, they've learned new things from either listening to a fellow professional or even listening to a landowner. You know, all these kind of stories come together in a really cool open format um, that, you know, everybody gets to enjoy and, and, and listen to and share in. Yeah, we've gotten some really sincere and and great feedback from, yeah, like you said, not just landowners, but also professionals, people we work with every day that have been enjoying this and looking forward to every episode. Some have said that they want, you know, episodes more frequently, which we wish we could oblige. Uh, but yeah. I'm so, so glad that they're enjoying um, what we've been putting out, which like you said, we weren't even sure you know, if anyone was going to listen, uh, yeah. you know, knowing our, our demographic, I just didn't know if they were podcast listeners. So it's just been an overwhelmingly uh, great response. Yeah. And, you know, when we when we first started this, it's like th this is a part of our job, but also at the same time, we kind of added it on top. We would love, I mean, quite frankly, if this was my day job and this is all I did and I recorded an episode every week, <laughs> oh, that would be so cool. We would have so many awesome conversations right. and people to interview, uh, but we just can't do that. And, yeah. and so to get, get the 12 out and get the reception that we did, that was, that was really cool to hear. And I, I know going forward, I, you know, we, as you saw in the, in the episodes through the year, we kind of played with things and changed things and you know, sometimes it, it was two hours long for an episode and we got a little shorter towards the end. So thanks for hanging with us on that. You know, I, I guess I'm curious, Patrick, in the future, what, what would you like to, to see kind of maybe some new things or things you liked about how we've done this podcast? Uh, well, I liked that we transitioned towards a shorter uh, recording. And, and honestly, that was based um, very much on feedback. Uh, so several listeners yeah. used our, our survey that's on the Extension Forestry website, and I would say, please continue to give us feedback. You know, we do look at that. Um, and several of you said, you know, it'd be nice if it was just a little bit shorter. Um, of course, we did the Jerry Franklin one, which was like a two-part, two-hour, <laughs> and then we, we really got the message after that one. So um, so I really liked that, and I think we'll probably continue to shoot for 30 to 40-minute episodes, more pointed, focused on a topic, and, you know, who knows, maybe down the line doing that will allow us to do more episodes yeah and, and i think another thing i'd love to see you know with the podcasting world there's so many different styles you know you hear some we we kind of focus on the conversational the interview style but a lot of people they'll also do more educational pieces where you know yeah. patrick or i or or one of our other foresters might come on and give you a 30 minute brief on a topic and so maybe in the future we'll include uh, more of a focused presentation about certain forestry topics that you guys might find interesting. So if there's something that we haven't talked about or a specific subject or region that you'd love to hear about, let us know because we can definitely add that to the repertoire of future episodes. And so what, what does the future look like for this? Our, I know so we're at the end of the 12. Where, where's this going from here? Well, we're definitely going to continue. I don't want anybody to get the idea that it was 12 and done. We uh, definitely want to keep the, the podcast going. Uh, we are going to take a little break. We'll consider these first 12 seasons, season one, or first 12 episodes, sorry, season one. Um, and we'll kick it up with season two, probably uh, after the, the new year in 2023. So we're going to kind of take the fall off. 
Um, and Sean, I know you've got some news for the listeners as well about the future of the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure by the time this episode airs, many of you will know. Um, but I have actually accepted a position with the Oregon Department of Forestry. And when this episode airs, I will no longer be working with Washington State University. So it's been an immense pleasure, really, being a part of this team. First of all, working with Andy Perleberg, Kevin Zobrist, really working with yourself, Patrick. You know, when we when we started this podcast, you and I had actually never met each other. And I think that's that's so cool. And I, you know, for all the listeners, you know, when when Patrick and I did this, we had been meeting over Zooms. Um, but you know, Patrick was in the Southwest, I was in the Northeast. COVID was keeping us separated, and we were just like, let's do this, uh, and we did it, and and it, we vibed, and that was really cool to to have that chemistry. You know, as we kind of came together to work on a project like this, um, and you know, now Grace and Rebecca have joined the team, so I I feel good that the future of forestry is here. Um, but I am off to go learn a new world of forestry and, you know, really grow in my in my understanding and, and practice in the skill of this field. Um, so I'm excited for it, excited for the new opportunity. But I've really I'm so humbled having worked with so many excellent landowners and really humbled for all of you who have joined us along the way. So thank you really to all the listeners, all the foresters, all the landowners, all the practitioners out there who actively engage in this. Um, because I really I couldn't have done it without you, um, and I'm I'm excited to hear where the, the extension forestry team takes this podcast in the future. Well, and um, I definitely have to to thank you as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've always really enjoyed working with you on any projects, but this project obviously was particularly special. Uh, and I think I and the listeners owe you a. a particular debt of gratitude because truthfully i don't think that this thing would have got pushed through if it was just me i think uh you you really were coming at it with force you're really excited about it i mean this is obviously a partnered project and i'm i'm so excited for the role that i played but um you really helped create something awesome and it's going to continue on without you uh we'll all be sad about that but there'll be new voices on you know kevin's gonna help uh grace rebecca help maybe we'll even get andy on who knows um but uh you should be really proud i think of the the podcast and and knowing that it'll keep going thanks patrick i appreciate it well i'll do i'll do one last sign off for the podcast so uh, for our for our last episode, I want to say thank you for all of our listeners for joining us at the Forest Over Story. Have a nice day.